Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Danny Lafayette, Drew White. It's July 15th, 2022. We're at Rocky Hill Vineyard in McMinnville. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the first question, either one of you can take this to get rolling, is why wine? I'll go first. Yeah, please. All right. Well, for me, it was kind of an organic development. I worked in the wine industry, or not in the wine industry, but in the restaurant industry, selling wine, talking about wine. Um, for over a decade uh, downtown in Portland at Jake's Grill and I just loved it it brings people together it always makes people happy I love talking about the different wine regions and how things were made and how the styles vary and so I was cocktailing for a long time and kind of didn't really do anything with my college degree which was in community development and Spanish Um, and I was just making really good money working in the restaurant industry so I stayed with it for a long time My sister and I, she lives in Roseburg in the Umpqua Valley. We loved going wine tasting, and every time I went down to visit her, we would always hit up like three or four places. Hillcrest is one of my favorite. Um, And she and I decided one day on a whim to take the intro-level SOM certification. And I had no idea really what I was getting myself into and studied for like six months and ended up taking the test and passing it and just really loved the education. It's such a mix of culture and history and geography and science and art. I just fell in love with it. And so I decided to go back to school and go to Chemeketa in Salem and do their um, Associates of Applied Science and get a degree in winemaking. And they also have a little vineyard out there. And so we got to do a lot of hands-on vineyard work. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met Drew. Yeah, so I guess my aha moment was taking the Intrasom certification and passing and realizing that it was something that I was really passionate about. And it all kind of <laughs> fell together from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about for you, Drew? Yeah, a very similar story in that I didn't use my bachelor's degree <laughs> in creative writing. Um, I ended up being a chef working in Portland and uh, kind of got plunged into wine that way. Um, my general manager took me to a lot of uh, big wine tastings for the industry, Galaxy, Columbia, all of that, and um, started getting interested, and then I met my wife, and she was also pouring wine at the time, so it was something that we all kind of came around together, and uh, from there it was just, you know, I started collecting, and then I figured that, I figured out that, like, wine is something that, like, you can never know everything about. And like pursuing that really uh, made me want to pursue it, you know, um, I guess if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so yeah, I went to Chemeketa, um, quit cooking, got burnout, quit cooking, went to Chemeketa, decided to make something that takes a little longer to cook. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, here we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing Jessica Ensworth for the first time when I was working at Jake's and she came in and she was working for Moet Chandon 
and she gave us a class on sparkling wine and she was just so vivacious and just full of energy and just passionate about it and I was like who is this woman I want her job <laughs> this is awesome she just goes around and talks about champagne all day long like amazing so yeah that was that was a she was a big influence on my life too I ended up working at a tasting room called Angela Estate for about two years and uh, Jessica was the general manager at that time so she was a big influence on on my life as well so before we get into the kind of the forward path from Chemeca to on, tell me about, you mentioned wine education, a big part for both of you. Before you were doing formal wine education, tell me about learning wine and mm. sort of starting to understand both wine, the, the, the product, the, the tapes, the flavor, but also wine, the regions and the varietals. What was, what, what was exciting about learning it for you and what were the kind of the, the most, uh, the, big, the kind of the biggest moments in that education for you? I'll start. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was my, men my, my first like wine mentor, if you want to call it that. Um, he was really into big reds, uh, Zinfandel, like nice Zinfandel, um, uh, and uh, Bordeaux varietals, and then oaky, buttery Chardonnay. And so that's where I started. And, um, you know, as there's a thing, we, I used to store my wine at this place in Portland called Portland Wine Storage. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this thing called Scary Bottle Night they do every around Halloween, and everybody breaks out all their their wine that is just maybe good, maybe bad, and um, everybody gets to try everything. And that's kind of like how I how it kind of those nights kind of blew my mind because it was like you, you tasted old wine, good wine, bad wine, young wine, everything, every varietal, and it was just like. You know, whoa, what? <laughs> There's a lot here yeah. to, to, to parse through. And, and uh, so, yeah. Yeah, mine was more of in like the restaurant scene. So we would have a fresh talk every night and we would have all of our specials and then we would have our wine, um, you know, promotions that we'd be trying to push certain wines or these are the wines that you should pair with food. And so mine was really about like pairing fine dining food with wine. And so, yeah, every night we would open the bottles and test it and taste mm -hmm. the dishes. And that was a really formative part of my life too, just seeing how wine pairs with food and the way that it can elevate your meal. And um, yeah, so mine was, mine was more of a nightly service kind of education. Mm. As you were learning that that part of it, we obviously we hear that a lot. People who come from fine dining backgrounds and get into the industry. Tell me about uh, what was exciting about that. What, what's exciting about pairing wine with food? What did that uh, open up for you that maybe you wouldn't have ordered otherwise? Yeah, I guess the the revelations. You know that wow, if you have a big fatty steak and you have a nice big red, and how it can cleanse the palate or complement the meal or. Or just, it, it felt special also being able to recommend these things to guests and to have that knowledge and to be able to say, oh, this is what you're having a whitefish for dinner. This is maybe what would pair nicely. And then to have people respond positively to that, it, you felt educated and you felt like kind of fancy, you know? And so, I mean, I was really young. I was like 19 through 28 when I worked there. And so it, it made me feel like more of a professional for sure. Just so... And for Drew, tell me a similar thing. Uh, obviously, you mentioned kind of how you how your palate started. Tell me about how it evolved, especially as you were cooking. How did your palate evolve? Uh, yeah, so I went from liking tannins to liking acid, basically. <laughs> um, as is, you know, Oregon. Um, we're all about 
acid and um, so acid's a really good thing to pair with food um, you know uh, when you're working with fatty meats and cheeses and, and things like that it, like being able to offset and, and kind of provide contrast is is a really cool way to uh, heighten experiences for myself and for the for the for the diners the recalibration of your palate yeah. you know you kind of bring it back to a center point and then you can explore other things and then recalibrate 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 it's fun mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me both of you tell me about the experience at Chemeketa, uh what it was like for you what you took away from it and, and I'm curious at that time in your lives what were you sort of thinking you would do with that degree yeah um I'll go first sure. uh I loved my time at Chemeketa. I thought it was just beautiful out there. My professors were awesome. Yeah. Um, Jessica Cortell was, Scott Dwyer, um, yeah. and Scott Dwyer, they were amazing um, educators. So there was a full lab out there. We did all the lab work. There was, um, I think it was what, like a six acre vineyard? Oh, I can't remember Ish. how big it was, yeah. but it was kind of a smallish vineyard. So we got to do all the hands-on vineyard work and then, um, yeah, just learning all about phys fine physiology and um, how to spot bugs. I mean, it was like, it was everything. It was Very really, in really in-depth and really inclusive. There was also tasting classes. Um, there was like history classes. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was really great. It was a lot packed into a two-year program. It flew by. Um, and I loved it and I made some really good friends. I have some like long-term friends, not only Drew, but uh, other people there too that, that are in food and beverage and mm -hmm. beverage science. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I really, I really had a good time. I feel like our, like a lot of other wine programs, like community college wine programs have what they call cohorts. And we don't really have that because it's kind of everybody wants to study at their own pace, but our little cohort of like, six or seven people um we're all doing wine yeah still like. yeah they're all we're all in the industry chelsea's in cider, cider yeah. but um yeah we're actually all now currently working in the industry mm -hmm. um M my goal going through the program was to be able to make my own wine same um, <laughs> yeah you know. i knew that right right out of the yeah, gate that's what i wanted to do yeah why what what, did, what prompted you to want to make wine I love creating things. I'm just in a, I'm a creative nature person. I like to do macrame. I like to work with my hands. I've always been connected with nature. I grew up in Southern Oregon. We went camping a lot. I mean, I lived on a little farm when I was a kid. So I've always been connected to nature. And I that's why when we had this opportunity to do the vineyard thing, it was like, oh, mm -hmm. hell yeah, we're <laughs> doing that, you know? Um, but yeah, go ahead. What was the question? That's oh, <laughs> okay. What, what, what makes you? What made you know you wanted to make wine? Um, when you cook for a living, um, you make food for X amount of people every night, and it's an it's an instant thing. Like you make the food, it goes to the table. They they experience it Im immediately, and if it's good, if they like it, and you did a good job, then it's a positive thing all around. And so. I wanted to do that on a longer scale. I wanted to make something that takes a little bit longer, that I can really think about, that I can um, focus a lot of energy and um, brain space on, and just um, kind of see how that affects 
what I think about what I'm doing and, you know, how, how the people who are drinking it feel about what I'm doing too, you know. I really love wine because it's multi-sensory, right? Like, mm. and it's just so hands-on. So during harvest, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful colors, it's beautiful smells, it's beautiful flavors. And you never really know what's gonna happen. Like you try your hardest to <laughs> quote unquote, like control what's happening, but really it's just gonna go in the direction that it wants to go. And yeah. so we're just trying to, to guide it in the right direction. Um, gentle pushes. Gentle in pushes in the right direction. Um, put out some fires occasionally you know but but yeah it's it's just such a beautiful end product right like you it's so multi-sensory you've got beautiful color you can smell it you can taste it and it also makes you feel good you know it's just it's a wonderful thing to be able to create and just makes us really happy yeah so coming out of the program then, tell me about your kind of first step into the industry after that. Start with you, Danny. What, what, was the, what was the first thing you did after? So the first thing I did was apply for a harvest position. And there's a renowned winery called Antiquatera. And um, Drew and I actually both applied to make wine there for them for the harvest and yeah so I went directly into that we graduated in June yeah. and then that next harvest was our first one what year 2018 yeah yes 2018 so yeah that was my first goal was to get a harvest under my belt <clears throat> I had done a harvest while I was in school at Edgefield and met some really great people there um, but yeah it was the first goal was to get a harvest under my belt in a commercial winery Tell me about that experience. It was magical. I loved it. It was so much hard work, though. It was insane. I mean, it was 16-hour days every day uh, for two months. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It was. But but what we learned there was really formative as well. Um, just the attention to detail. So much sorting. Um, you know, only the best things go into the fermenter. Really gentle handling and gentle nudges in the right direction without trying to be overbearing. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I, I did a harvest uh, during school at Trisadum. Mm -hmm. um, so we get, the cool thing about that program is we get school, uh, school credit for doing a harvest. Mm -hmm. We get paid and we get school credit. Um, so um, after that, I, w I worked with Danny at Antiquatera. And uh, yeah, Maggie and Trevor are um, incredible educators on how to make wine. Um, they're both insanely intuitive yeah. and intelligent and and anything you want to know they freely share um it was just i i think it's made the biggest impression on me and how i make my wine um that i've ever had for anything that i've ever made I was working hard i'd worked two harvests there um, yeah. So super influential, right? Yeah. Yeah. Super influential. We were harvest was winding down, and Drew and I were racking barrels of Chardonnay. And by the way, their wines are amazing. I don't know if you've <laughs> had them, but they're like blow your mind. Yeah. Just like ethereal, delicious, amazing wines. And we're sitting there racking barrels, and we're like, so what are we gonna what are we gonna do after this? You know? And Drew's like, we should make Chardonnay. And I was like, yes, <laughs> we're gonna do that. And we did. And it was just scrapping all of our money together and really really low budget like just trying to make it work just started with two barrels yeah trying to make maggie harrison wines on like not maggie harrison on like money. student <laughs> budgets right <laughs> it's a noble goal yeah they turned out really good yeah. i mean 
I'm not going to say they're as good as Antigua Pro, <laughs> but they're really nice. They're good. We love them. Yeah, we do. We do. So yeah, it was, it was great. We bought a couple of French oak barrels and found a space to do it in and um, tried to make it the way that Maggie makes it. Before we talk, I'm, I'm curious about a couple things from that, but I'm, uh, what was the experience like being in charge after making wine for other people, being harvest intern? What was it like being the ones making the decisions? I thought it was terrifying, um, but also really fun. Yeah. And we knew the style that we were on the same page, right, for the, for the most part. I mean, we really were trying to achieve the same goal, so there wasn't a lot of, like, disagreements no. ab about how to do it. The great thing about us as a partnership is that we don't just have to rely on ourselves to problem solve. We can talk through it with each other yeah and we have a lot of mentors too yeah. like uh michael lundine at walnut city wine works that's where we make the wine and he has been integral to our success yeah for sure yeah thank you michael <laughs> <laughs> seriously yeah and i currently work at wine by joe and dobbs family estate i'm the lab tech there so we're pretty well-rounded as well drew's working at walnut city right now in the cellar and yeah. so we have Lab experience, seller experience, harvest experience, managerial experience. <laughs> so yeah, I feel, and now, and we're we're bringing this vineyard back to life too. So I feel like we've really got the thumb on the pulse of all areas of the mm -hmm. industry. Working on marketing. It's the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> we spent uh, more time designing a label for our wine than we did on our wine. <laughs> it took two years, yeah. Uh, we're happy with the product. So. Very. <laughs> when you decided to start making Chardonnay, were you thinking commercial right away or was it, was it just something you wanted to make to see what would happen? Definitely wanted to sell it, mm -hmm. yeah. We, we're trying to get to a point where we can do this full time. So tell me about that process then of uh, choosing you mentioned finding a space, finding grapes, finding marketing, finding the mm -hmm. style you're going for. Tell me about all of, all of that process and how, how, how it unfold, uh, unfolded for you. Uh, it was piece by piece. Um, so I was in Chicago after 2018 harvest and I saw an ad for barrels on winejobs.com. And uh, I said, I called Danny as soon as I saw the ad and I said, we need these barrels. And that's where we got our barrels. Yeah. Um, we spent 900 bucks and got four white wine barrels. Um, one of which we still love. It still makes the best wine. Uh, it's still in use. Um, and, uh, and how we got the space. Talk about the Walnut space. City. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I met Michael Lundeen. Um, I was a coach for a t-ball team and Michael's son was on the team and we got to talk in and cause he was the, uh, one of the other coaches and uh, he said, why don't you come by and taste some wine? So that, so I did and one thing led to another. I ended up doing bottlings for him here and there. Um, he always needs extra hands around the winery. So I would show up and do some work and um, after the 2019 harvest at Antiquaterra, uh, he approached me about working full time there, and I said, "Hmm. Well, we're looking. Well, we had already started making wine there, huh?" Uh, before you were working there, yeah. I don't think so. I think you were working there first. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so 
Well, I said, well, that's interesting because we need a place to make our wine. Uh, do you have any space for like four barrels? And, and he said, yeah, of course we have a space for four barrels. It'll be our smallest client. Um, and uh, yeah, that's else? that's how it happened. Yeah, that, no, that's how it happened. We made two barrels of sparkling and two barrels of Chardonnay. Yeah. The, the sparkling's still on Tourage. Um, we've done, done two iterations of a non-vintage Blanc de Blanc cuvee. And just last year we did uh, uh, Blanc, Blanc de Noir. Or Blanc de Noir, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so yeah, and one of our barrels had like horrific EA and Michael traded us a barrel and like he just helped us out so much. And just like, yeah, helping through the process and like the, the panic moments that Drew and I have, we're like, oh my God, everything's going to hell. Like, what are we gonna it's do? It's May and it's not through Mallow like, yet. Yeah. What are we doing? He's like, calm down, you guys. Yeah, everything's you guys gonna be fine. Okay. So he really keeps us grounded yeah. and yeah. Yeah, so Drew started working there, and then we started with the two barrels in 2019. And in terms of fruit, um, we sourced fruit from a vineyard up in, it's actually in Multnomah County, off of Old Germantown Road, uh, called Robinson Estate. Um, it's one of the coolest places, or the fruit there is incredible. Um, it maintains its acidity in, like the, the Chardonnay mains, maintains its acidity into October like just keeps it, it holds on to it. And it's, um, you would look at this vineyard and compare it to other vineyards and you'd say, I don't understand how that works. And we still don't understand how it works. <laughs> it's just like, we get it and it's, it's you know. It's gorgeous. 3.1 pH and has 23 grams of sugar. And you're just like, I don't, okay, well, let's make good wine with it. Yeah, we Here love we it. We've yeah. been getting a little bit of it every year, yeah. So take me through the, the process, the first couple of years of making wine. You mentioned kind of the panic moments. We hear a lot about the panic moments. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, tell me about uh, the, the sort of the, the biggest sort of learning curve for yourselves or the biggest kind of uh, the, the, the milestones for yourselves. What were the biggest points that you look back and remember thinking like, this was a big moment. This was, this was something that happened that was important. I'll start. Um, so we, one of the things that we learned working with Maggie and Trevor was that um, you always have to pay attention to what the grapes want. And so we went into this uh, vintage with a plan, a crush plan, and um, the vintage said, to hell with your crush plan, um, you need to do something else. And, and it was a big reminder that like, we can't just dictate we need to let the, the fruit dictate, and then we, like, we provide the, the bumpers for it, you know? Yeah, um, it's kind of our ethos now is that we don't really have any hard set plans. I mean, we know our core wines are Chardonnay and sparkling, and then from there, it just depends on what's ripe and when. We do a lot of blending. We, we play with skin contact stuff, so things ripen at different times, and, you know, you can't blend two things together that aren't at the, ripe at the same. We like to co-ferment things, too, so you mm -hmm. can't you can't always plan and have it work out. So just really like going with the flow and trying to be chill about it. And, and, what, and what fruit's available And too. what fruit's available. And we've had so many challenges. So 2020 was our second vintage and the smoke was just insane. But we, all we made was white wine. So it actually worked out really well. <laughs> our whites turned out great. Yeah. Um, and then 2021 was pretty, pretty chill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we branched out into red wine. Um, we made Pinot, Cab Franc. Yeah, and a and, skin contact. And a skin contact, a Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think 
Yeah, to Drew's point, like what was a major moment was, it was that, yeah, you're gonna panic, but there's always something that you can do. You just need to step back, see what the solution is. Mm -hmm. And that not having a hard set plan is best for us. I mean, I know a lot of like really huge wineries, they have case counts to meet and things like that, but that's what's so great about being so small is we don't have that, you yeah. know, and we can experiment and we can- Make the things that we wanna make. That we wanna make, mm -hmm. yeah. I think, um, one of my moments was I literally spent like my last like $50 on sulfur tabs and I was like <laughs> okay I'm doing this you know like all in those barrels need to be sulfured I don't care I'm gonna drive I drove for Postmates for like two years just trying to make extra money to like cover everything and taking this the the step down from being in the service industry and going into a base level position at a winery was a really big financial hit yeah. And it scared me a lot, but um, it was never—it was never really a question to not to not do it. You know, right. we just did what we had to do to to make the wine. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, tell me about the. I want to talk about the day jobs a little bit before we. Talk, I'll go back. I have many more questions about your brand, but tell me about working at Wine by Joe. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it's a big place. Yeah. A lot going on there. So tell me about your role there. I love it. I love my job. Yeah, <laughs> love my job, and everyone's so supportive. Like everyone that I work with is just super proud of us, and <laughs> and just yeah. really supportive. I mean. I've sold a lot of wine to coworkers, you know, and, and I get a lot of feedback. And so that's, that's another big thing is being able to bounce ideas off of people. My lab manager, Brad Winter has been instrumental in our panic moments and helping us figure things out and yes. calm down and find solutions. If there's, if a fermentation's going south, you he's know, a, yeah. so he's a voice of reason. He is a voice <laughs> of calm and reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I love my job. I've, um, grown quite a bit there. I've, I've learned a lot. So we have the wine by Joe side, which is like the really large scale production. And then we have the Dobbs family estate where most things are done in barrel and, um, more DTC, like through the tasting room. Um, so, and then we're the lab for both sides. So we like to call ourselves Switzerland. We, <laughs> We hold no, <laughs> you know, precedent over either one. We, we try to remain um, loyal to both equally. Um, but yeah, so I get to see, you know, stabilization processes on a large scale or versus like a smaller scale. So they have different protocols in each of the wineries. And so it's it's a nice blend. I mean, I've really just learned a lot about large production and small. So it's it's just been really valuable to, to my knowledge. Um, and yeah, I've recently become their sustainability coordinator as well. So I got us life certified for last year and I'm maintaining that certification for us. So I've kind of stepped into a little bit bigger of a role of, of tracking all of our greenhouse gas emissions and water usage and electricity and, and all the stuff that you have to report on for live. It's really cool. Yeah, love it. <laughs> and Drew, tell me about your, 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 the, your work at, uh, at uh, Walnut City. Um, so I wear a lot of hats there. I I, um, <laughs> it's we're a small custom crush facility. Um, our two biggest clients, one of them is Michael Lundin's, uh, the the general manager slash winemakers, personal brand called Lundin. Um, he focuses on Pinot mostly and uh, sparkling wine. So we we make sparkling wine. Um, the whole way through in-house by hand. Um, we don't have machines that do anything for us. Uh, we are the machines. Um, <laughs> and then also I am the viticulturist for um, 
the, the vineyard side. Um, so I've spent the last two months out in vineyards getting sunburned and looking at leaves and clusters. And I also drive a tractor. Um, I do sales. Uh, I just demolished the tasting room because we're renovating the tasting room. So I do construction as well. <laughs> um, it's just, but you know, it's, it's something where I love it because I never know what I'm going to do when I go in the next day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I kind of have an idea, but it's, it's such a, a varied course or scope of work that it's, it's just like I go in and I do something and it's probably going to be cool. Um, but yeah, we make, you know, we make, we make $18 Pinot, we make $80 Pinot, we make $20 sparkling, we make $150 sparkling. And, and, and so just seeing the, the, like the levels of quality, um, and like the, the decision-making process on those things is, is really helpful for me as a winemaker and just as like, I mean, it's healthy for me as a person, you know? Does that make any sense? Totally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So we talked earlier about the, about kind of how the brand started. Tell me about coming up with sort of the name and the look of what you were going for. You mentioned that was harder even than the wines themselves. So we went through many different ideas, many different ideas. Yeah. And it's like, we'd love it for like a week and then be like, oh God, I hate that. Like, no, I hate it. Why did we even think of that? But yeah, <laughs> we started with like, why don't we just call it Lafayette and White Cellars? Yeah. And then your friend was like, well, that sounds like a, a law, law firm. firm. Yeah. And then, and, then we, and so we looked at all these different names and all these different ideas, and we just came back to Lafayette and White Cellars. Yeah. Well, we figured we needed a brand. Yeah. We needed a logo, and then you need brands underneath, right? Like, that's the structure, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, we didn't know. So it took us a while to be like, okay, Lafayette and White Cellars is like the company, and then we're going to make brands underneath that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I love dinosaurs <laughs> and I was just, I don't know, I was on a dinosaur kick and I was just looking up different like images. I really wanted to go with something that looked nat natural, like nature and um, like a beautiful landscape. We, we were into like the stars, the landscapes, the, the trees, the soil mm -hmm. horizons. We wanted to do something about terroir and, and land and um, was it you that said something about the Eocene yeah. and the rocks? What, what was it? Well, the Eocene era is when the bedrock of Oregon was formed. Um, so then I was like, oh, Google search Eocene. <laughs> and this I found this beautiful image yeah. of Eocene flora and fauna. And so we're like, that's a really cool story because grapevines, you know, they grow their roots super deep down into the ground. They hit bedrock. Bedrock is parent material. It's what the soil is comprised of. And it's what makes Oregon wine different from Washington wine, yeah. California wine, yeah. aside from climate, but like, well, yeah, climate too. Yeah. But we just thought it was a really cool idea. Um, talking about, you know, a geologic time period, 55 million years ago, when all the bedrock was formed on the West coast of North America. And, and look at all these crazy creatures that were living at that time. And it just turned out really beautiful. We also hired a graphic designer, Jason yeah. Rawl. Thank you. Um, helped us put it all together. And um, yeah, did the, did the really cool little cutout on the back, and yeah, we just had so much fun with it. So it took us like two glossy. years. Yeah, the, the Crocs all glossy. <laughs> we just we were like, oh, we get to design. Like, how cool are we gonna make it? You know, and that was a lot of fun. 
That was a lot of fun. Yeah. But yeah, it took us about two years to get that image mm -hmm. and to feel good about it and feel like the story was right and that it fit our style. Yeah. Yeah. And then our, uh, we have another sub label called yeah. Echo. Um, and this was an idea we came up with last year where we take, uh, well, last year we took one ton of fruit. Um, we co-fermented it. Um, it was 75% Gewürztraminer, 25% Pinot Noir. Co-fermented it on the skins uh, for four days and then pressed it off. And then at about, what was it like? One brick. One brick. Yeah. Uh, we um, took ha uh, half of it out and bottled it as Pet Nat. And just straight, like we ran it through a cold stable or a heat exchanger, heat exchanger to chill it. To chill it, pause fermentation, bottled it while it was cold put it out in the sun. And so there's two different wines from the same juice. Um, so you can experience, cause like a lot of times you, you, you have a wine and you're like, hmm, this is it, you know? Mm -hmm. And this kind of makes us think about how like, wines can be different things from the same fruit, you know? Yeah, so, the yeah. effervescence versus the still portion. And they're the same voice, so they're just different points in time. Mm -hmm. One's captured earlier and the other one continues on. So we did start another brand called Echo and we're gonna do that every year too. Mm -hmm. Do a pet nat and still version of a wine. And, we, and it's, they're all like unfined, unfiltered, natural natural wines. So we wanna, we wanna keep that going as well. Yeah. Just do like funky combinations of varietals, mm -hmm. super aromatic. Yeah. yeah. So you talked earlier about the marketing and selling and such being being the hardest part. We've heard obviously we've heard that many times. So tell me about you have a bottle, you have a, <clears throat> a, a wine in a bottle that has your name on it. Tell me about getting that out into people's hands and what what have been the challenges and the successes so far. Part of the great thing about us being from the restaurant industry is that we know a lot of people in the restaurant industry. <laughs> yeah, it's and been so we've got it's been a help. I've got chefs that I know all over the country, and she's got bartenders, bartenders that she knows all over the country, and 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 um, so that's been a real big help uh, in terms of getting our wine out to the public. Um, the hardest thing to do is to get a glass pour. Yeah, um, and we've been fortunate to have our friends. Um, put us on. Put us on. Yeah. yeah. So we're in a lot of a lot of really cool spots, um, and uh, we love our our restaurant side. Uh, yeah. Else? Yeah. Yeah. Um, finding the time to do it. We have full time jobs. Mm -hmm. She's got a family. Yeah. Uh, and we're also doing the vineyard, and we're doing everything else. And so yeah, finding the time to, you know quote unquote, knock on doors, but just to go out and reach out to everyone, introduce yourself to everyone, pour for everyone, respond to emails from everyone. <laughs> and yeah, another another big challenge too is um, like the software that you need. So in grocery stores, they use a program called FinTech and that was kind of confusing to set up. Um, and then using QuickBooks. I mean, it's been a pretty steep learning curve. All the yeah. permits that you have to have, we're starting to do events now and how to be compliant with OLCC and all of that. Yeah. That That's something that um, we've just been learning on the fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you, what was, what's been the experience when you hand a bottle to someone that, whose opinion you trust and respect and, and watch them take a drink of it? It, hopeful terror. Yeah, hopeful terror. That's really good. We've had nothing but great responses from people too, and strangers and friends alike. Um, we, one of our 
core values is to not put anything out that we're not proud of. So if it's faulted in any way or we're not happy with it, I don't want to be in that position, right? Like, I don't want to be in the position where I feel uncomfortable serving someone my wine because I put out a shoddy product. Like, that's just not going to happen. So we stand behind everything that we put in the bottle. Exactly. So before we go on, you mentioned, you mentioned the vineyard, the space we're at now. So tell me about how this came to be and, and what your what your role is here. I was also in Chicago during this year. You know? <laughs> it was a big, big trip. We went and saw the opera. Um... It was great, uh, but my friend uh, and mentor James Fry uh, over at Trisadum emailed me and said um, he had been approached by his neighbor, Hobart, um, <laughs> who had just recently bought a vineyard and didn't know what to do with it. And so James came over and looked at it and said, that's a big mess. I'm going to pass that on to my friend and um, I don't know what student I guess. yeah he said you're gonna have to find an <laughs> eager student that's willing yeah. to help you out so um, we, we were in school so. so yeah so we came back or I came back from <clears> Chicago <throat> and I had been talking with Danny a lot and we came out and looked at the property and it was like a lot um, it hadn't been pruned in I think six years so um, it was a thicket like the it was whole gnarly. thing was a, just a giant thicket and um and we didn't know what was alive and what was dead right. it seemed like there were clusters on there and hobart <laughs> was pulling out dug furs from between the rows that had been growing i mean it was just in severe neglect mode yeah um, so we just did the work and um got it back like pruned it down um luckily the second year we had some help with some professionals uh some friends of mine who do do vineyard work um, and uh, we're like nursing the soil back to health, adjusting the pH, um, providing the nutrients it needs and um, every year our crop has gotten bigger so. Yeah, it took us like three months to rip all that, to prune it and rip all of it out. And we were doing it in the snow. Yeah. I mean, it was insane. We were way too eager to do that. I don't know why we did that, but um, it's been really nice to see the vines kind of balance out a little bit more. We still have some like really vigorous portions. Um, there's a septic tank underneath here and they think it might maybe be leaking a little bit so like lots of nutrients for like <laughs> the upper part of the vineyard um but yeah applying applying fertilizer to the less vigorous parts and just just trying to get some semblance of balance back and it, it really has gotten better we harvested 800 pounds of fruit 90 well, the first year 90 yeah. the first year and then 800 the Last next year, year. Yeah. and so this year we're really hoping for hopefully double that i mean it's about an acre so if we could get close to to close the to vines, a ton that'd yeah. be great yeah the vines were are are 20 25 years old i mean they're old vines and we have no idea um, what they are yeah. We, well, it's Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris, right. but, and it's, the lore the is that are. it's, it's Dickie Rouse suitcase clones of Pinot Noir. Um, but we don't know. We haven't done genetic testing on it. It's extremely expensive. Yeah. And yeah, we just, we put it in our rosé every year. So <laughs> yeah, it's been working out. And Hobart's been so much help too. He does all the tractor work and, and all the digging out of the roots of the blackberries and stuff like that. And mowing. So, and mowing. And, and, and yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Hobart, yeah. yeah. 
So with a project like that, uh, obviously you mentioned kind of the first step was just even finding finding the vineyard again and, and getting down to it. What were the what were the as you as you kind of looked at it at first? What, what was your kind of like what were the initial goals? What do you what do you have to do and in what order do you have to get something back into balance? I mean, it was everything was. Um everything was dormant so we didn't know what was alive and what was dead the, the best thing that we could do is to prune it to figure out what is alive and what's dead um so the first step was just clearing out cleaning it up like truckloads of brush mm -hmm. um and breaking lots of loppers mm -hmm. and, and went knuckles. through so many pairs yeah. of shears and the blackberries were insane yeah. but yeah and then waiting you know <clears throat> with anticipation to see when spring hits, what's gonna grow back. Is it gonna be in total shock from being pruned back so heavy? Um, and so, yeah, 2020 was the first year of growth yeah. and um, surprisingly vigorous. I mean, yeah. it was clear that the plants were still alive. There's some portions um, where there might be some trunk disease or there, are some dead heads out in the in the Pinot Green and Hobart's ripped out um, several of those rows that they were just mostly dead. It gets a lot of shade over there. There's a little gully that goes down and it was full of trees and blackberry bushes and so it shaded that portion of the vineyard a lot and so he cleared all that out. So we have like four rows of Pinot Gris left over there. But And then there was a random block up here by the top of the house that was, we had no idea what it was. It was a mix of red and white and it was just so much powdery mildew so that's what we've been struggling with is it was so overgrown and there were so many years of powdery mildew building up and building up and building up that 2020 was moldy it was it was bad and so we're like we have to thin it so much more get that air light or sunlight and airflow in there and just really open it up and we've been trying to be really tight about our spray programs yeah. we only spray sulfur uh for the first two years and um yeah, so just trying to like manage the disease pressure and see what comes back and manage our expectations as well. I mean, it's just like a ferment, you know, we're giving it, we're trying to give it the best environment to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, so little by little, um, you know, and every year we, every year we farm out here, uh, we learn a lot of stuff. We learn, you know, various nutrient deficiencies around we learn where where like the soil ph is clearly off you know there's just a lot of things that we learn it's just you it's like you learn by doing um and it's it, it's it's a manageable enough size vineyard that it can seem daunting and overwhelming a lot of times it does, it does right now it but, feels very daunting um, and overwhelming right now yeah but yeah i mean it you know in the end they're gonna grow next year and we'll give it another crack, you know, yeah. mess something up. Yeah. Yeah, it's slow going. You know, it's one year after the other year. It's only been three years. And I think that <clears throat> we've made a monumental difference. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned earlier 2020 being your, your second vintage and having some having some good luck of making white wines that year. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about the rest of 2020 and your, and your experiences, both day job, this job, life in general. Obviously a tough year for everyone. Uh, yeah. So tell me about 2020 and the sort of the changes you had to make, the adjustments you had <laughs> to make and, and how you got through. It was rough. I mean, yeah. um, 
wearing masks because of COVID during harvest. I mean, it's hot. Yeah, I'm just like smashing vineyard samples all day long, just sweating. You can, you're not breathing very well. And then the, the impact of the orange. smoke, it was, it was like a hellscape. <laughs> it looked crazy driving into Dundee every day. It was, it was scary. Yeah. And thinking about the vineyard stewards being out there working and picking, and we have open doors in, at Wine by Joe and Dobbs, and it's just everyone's just working in the smoke and just trying to be safe and trying to be healthy. And but the fruit's coming in, you know. I mean, there's no there's no stopping the fruit from coming. So um, just really putting your head down. Um, working in the lab was insane. We did so many mini fermentations of vineyard samples, trying to figure out what was smoke impacted, what wasn't. Our poor winemakers had to taste thousands of tiny bottles of, of pre-fermented vineyard samples to try to make decisions. Um, I can only imagine what upper management was going through with working with vineyard contracts and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. uh. Yeah, the first the first day we brought in fruit, the sky was orange. Um, I'll never forget that. Uh, we have we had the the most rinky dink air filter I have ever. We built it. It was a it was a box fan, and uh, two uh, two like house air filters duct taped to it and cardboard on top, and that was what we used for air fil air filtration. So. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, we, <clears throat> it was like a really big coming together point for the wine, for the wine industry in general, because everybody was just like, what do we do? Yeah. Um, so everybody was talking mm -hmm. and everybody had ideas and we tried a lot of different ideas. And I think we made some really good wines. The thing about 2020 was if it hadn't been for that smoke, it would have been an incredible year. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the size of the fruit was small. So like, uh, you know, uh, skin to skin to juice ratio is like super high for for skins. Um, big, powerful, dark wines, and you see that, but then it's got smoke on it, and so it's like, oh, so I'm cool. gonna ignore that this is an incredible wine because there's smoke in it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'll say also though that the people that did make wine and then and did release it to the public they've made a good product and that yeah. that people shouldn't discount 2020 as a vintage i agree because the people that did release wines they they treated it correctly they or they weren't as impacted and and they made a good product so don't be afraid of buying 2020. Yeah. <laughs> our our little program um our chardonnay like so we only made white wine so our chardonnay uh our early pick chardonnay that we use for sparkling wine Perfect. Yeah. Um, our late pick that we use for uh, still wine uh, stalled out inexplicably. We tried everything. We tried to restart it. We tried to feed it. You know, everything that you can try, it stalled out with like four grams of sugar. So, um, right. good thing it had a high acid. Yeah. Because it actually is. Because it's from nicely, that site. It's nicely balanced. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, those are things that you just can't do anything. You, mm -hmm. you can't really do anything about. And, it, and again, it was that. It was that. It was that thing that smacks you in the face that says, just do what the wine is telling you to do. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful wine, too. It's like a really it's nice really Chardonnay. Good. Yeah, yeah. So, it's not, but yeah. no smoke. You know, no smoke. we did pick and it was a little bit smoky on, on the Chardonnay vineyard at the Robertson Estate. Um, I remember the picture that you sent me the, the morning that they picked and it was like our bin and it was all hazy. And I was just like, oh, God, get it out of there. <laughs> 
Get it to the winery, but yeah, no smoke impact on the whites. The whites were pretty nice. Yeah. So we, so yeah, so when we make wine, we usually, um, or when we make Chardonnay at least, we, we foot tread it and in a non-smoky year, we foot tread it and we bucket it straight into barrels out of the press. Um, 2020, we did not foot tread it. We mm -hmm. just pressed it and we let it settle. And we settled it so that's, first. You know, mm -hmm. that's the difference that we had to make on the fly mm -hmm. uh, for the for the grapes that we got. Yeah. 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 Roll with the punches. Mm -hmm. On that note, you talked about kind of making what you what you can each each year and and the grapes you can find and and, and et cetera. So tell me, as the brand develops and ha has developed and will develop, what are you doing differently already, and what do you kind of have designs on doing in the future? Um, what we're doing differently right now is experimenting with more skin contact stuff. And a lot of times, like, we take the scraps. Like, we'll take, like, a ton here, a ton there. You know, that's considered not a large portion of grapes. So some people will have some things left over. Yeah. So we're always looking for those little bits and pieces. And um, doing smaller ferments of things that we want to experiment with so we really value creativity and experimentation and so um, that's always going to be different there's always going to be something kind of new and interesting that we're working on mm -hmm. um, and but we'll always have the core wines as well like the rosé the riesling and the chardonnay um, next year we're going to be releasing our sparkling wine Probably we might wait one more year. We're gonna taste it. It's been on Tourage for two, so yeah. next year would be year three. Um, so sparkling wine is gonna be coming out, which we're really excited about. We love making sparkling wine, um, so that's gonna be a larger portion of our case count going forward for what's being released. And yeah, just like slow growth. We're not trying to ramp up really quickly, um, but it's been. It's been nice. We've we've got our wines in a couple of wine shops and several bars and restaurants, and we're feeling good about the sales and just getting our name out there and trying to build the brand slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Maybe you're like, is there something you uh, either a style or a varietal or anything that you're just like really hoping to work with in the future? Hmm? Ask a winemaker what they want to make and they'll just start listing varietals, right? Um, I want Nymphora and yeah. I want to do skin contact in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I think more uh, on, on, the, on the near horizon is uh, we're, we're going to start working with more Pinot Noir. Um, you know. Yeah. It's there. Like we, we can find really good Pinot Noir. We have, you know, a friend of ours. He has his little biodynamic vineyard and because of the frost this year, we can't get fruit from him, but yeah. um, we're going to get some fruit from him next year, I believe. And um, we've got a little vineyard down in, uh, what's it called? Rick Real. Rick Real, yeah, yeah. Eola Amity. Yep, um, on the south side of Eola Amity Hills yeah. that we, uh, we love. We're buying Pinot Noir from him this year. We only bought Chardonnay from him last year. Um, John Spring was sometimes a grape notion. Yeah. Yeah, it's a young vineyard, but yeah. it's beautiful. And he's got a north-facing Pinot block that we really want for Blanc de Noir. Yeah. So we're, look, we're looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. North-facing Pinot. That's, that's an incredible concept. <laughs> <laughs> 
just feel like, feel like the interviews we did in the past, that, would, that wouldn't have been something that came up. Oh, yeah, because it can hang, if, if the weather is nice, it can hang for a long time, and you can develop those phenolic maturity aspects, but also, like, hold really high acid, and it'll be gorgeous for Blanc de Noir. And, and it, gets, it gets the Van Duzer winds, like, mm -hmm. at night, so it's, you know, I mean, it's the, all the, it's all the, uh, you know, the, um, the advantages of having west side Eola Amity fruit, but it's 10 degrees cooler. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What about in the sort of the day job part of your things for you? Uh, do you have uh, sort of goals in mind for where that will take you? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I just want to, like, stay where I'm at right now with my day job. I'm really happy with it. I've, I've grown quite a bit in the three years that I've been there, so I think I'm, I'm at a really pleasant point um, with responsibility and and duties and things like that so yeah i'm i'm really happy where i am with my day job right now and i'm not driving for postmates anymore so i'm really happy about that <laughs> yeah um for my day job uh the the gentlemen who own walnut city wine works are trying to retire mm -hmm. um so it's getting i don't know if i'm allowed to even talk about this but it's getting bought by michael lundine for be for better or for worse in in a various capacity um so I'm going to work for him as the man of many hats. Um, and we have a really strong team, and I think we make really good wine. So I'm, I'm pretty happy where I'm at, too. And I get to watch my, I get paid to make my own wine. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> which is like, I didn't think I'd be there yet. <laughs> so I'm um, curious about, uh, as you were, you, you mentioned both coming into wine uh, uh, after by production in a different way. Uh, tell me about your sort of initial impressions of Oregon wine and of the Oregon wine industry uh, and what has changed in the industry since you've been a part of it. Hmm. Uh, the only thing I knew about Oregon wine, I didn't know anything. I didn't even know Oregon made wine when I moved out here. I moved out in 2008 from Kansas City. And uh, I was like, oh, there's a wine industry here, huh? And so the only thing I knew about it was Pinot Noir. Um, and uh, I think it's a lot more than that now. I think, I think sparkling, you know, everybody's been sparkling, yeah. talking about sparkling for a long time. Um, and I think it's starting to get some national recognition and, and worldwide recognition there. Um, I think that climate change is affecting what we can grow. Um, You know, where are we going to be in 10 years? Uh, yeah. How is Pinot Noir going to be in 10 years? Mm -hmm. It's going to be hot. Yeah, it's going to be a lot different. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got to make changes. Um, so. Yeah. I always, I always thought that Oregon had a really good reputation and for their, for their wine and also varied climates, you know? So there's like the warmer climate down south and the cooler climate up north. And so like that was, that was my impression was yeah. that it was, it was high end, it was high end wine and that we could make a lot of different styles. Um, I don't really think that that's changed except for the fact that I think we're just a little more prominent on people's tongues when they're talking about wine, organs is coming up more often. So I think just the notoriety, we've gained a little bit more popularity and kind of coming up, coming up in the market a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really just hope, I just wish Riesling would just have a moment, you know, like, come on, Oregon Riesling. That's what I hope for. I want, I want Riesling to have a moment here because I love it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the gorge too. I mean, the gorge is uh, my favorite place to visit. Yeah, really uh, diverse microclimates yeah. and a lot of a lot of cool stuff coming out of the gorge, mm -hmm. for sure. Well, don't give up on Riesling. I mean, I no, one thought, no one thought Oregon Chardonnay was going to have a moment that long ago. So I know. it could happen. I'm hanging in there. On that, what what do you think is coming next for Oregon wine? <sighs> Sparklings. It's going to be huge. Yeah. Isn't it already? It's going to blow up. I mean, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully next August, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, when we release. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, yeah, sparkling, um, but also I think Chenin Blanc is right around the corner. Um, Vermentino, Vermentino could be having a moment. Oh Troon makes an amazing Vermentino. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, whites, good. Oregon whites, have a moment. Yeah, have yeah. a uh, You mentioned climate change, obviously a topic we talk about a lot uh, yeah. in this work. Um, what do you see changing besides, besides sort of Pinot? What else, uh, what are the effects from climate change and what are you thinking about for your own brand in terms of sort of future proofing it? We- Higher elevation. <laughs> higher elevation. <laughs> yeah. We, um, Danny introduced uh, Michael, my boss, to Mr. Bob Leon. Yep, Dr. Dr. Bob, Bob Leon. Leon. That should be. He was a regular of mine at Jake's Grill yeah. and He's got a nice house up on a hill in the Chehalem Mountains and wanted to plant a little vineyard. Bald so Peak. Yeah, Bald Peak. Um, so the, they have planted, I think, four and a half acres mm -hmm. at 1,400 feet. Yeah, get them up there. With the idea of it being uh, a sparkling wine vineyard. So it's got Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay planted there. Um, okay. That's one of the things that we're doing. We've got a little bit of that fruit allotted to us whenever the fruit comes online. But plants just went in the ground this year, so. Yeah. Um, also, just being open to working with like thicker skin varietals. Um, you yeah. know, who knows what they're going to be growing in the southern Willamette Valley in the next 10, 20 years. Right. So, just being open to trying new things. Yeah, trying new varietals. I really want to make. Uh, what's the name of that thing that we made, or that that white wine that we made at Antiquaterra? Oh, Marsan Roussan? Yeah. Yeah, that'd really be nice. Yeah. We want to make everything. We just, we have to like reel it in sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, with the kind of the long term for Lafayette and White Cellars, uh, do you have goals in mind for, for size, for distribution, for anything like, what are you kind of thinking as you look ahead for it? We've always wanted our own space, uh, that's for sure. Um, it's, it's a slow growing, trying to do it organically kind of a process. So I kind of tend to have blinders on when it comes to thinking about five or 10 years out. I'm really just focused on getting what I need to get done in the moment. Cause there's a lot, especially just for two people to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I try not to worry too much about the future, but I mean, of course we want our own production space. I'd love to be my own boss. I would love to just work with you and make the wines and, and not have to have like five jobs, but it seems a little far out right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're just gonna focus on making the best wine that we can every year and growing the brand until it gets to the point where we can make that, that move. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, because of our small size, we don't carry as much cachet as um, larger wineries, or um, we don't carry as much like weight. Mm -hmm. So when we talk to a vineyard and we say, oh, we want like one ton, they're like, okay. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm going to sell that ton to somebody who's going to pay me for the whole lot. Who's going to buy all the tons. Yeah. Um, Not a lot of buying power. Yeah. So um, we just need to, like, I'm not focused on how big we want to get. I'm focused on how good our wines can be. I'd probably say around 5,000 cases max, like. Yeah. Yeah. If I had to, if I had to put out a number. Yeah. Yeah. But we make like 500 right yeah. now, so. 10x, right? 10x sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But eventually, yeah, definitely like to be paying ourselves at some point. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Always a big step. Yeah. Uh, if someone were to ask you for advice on getting into the Oregon wine industry, what would your words of wisdom or, or advice be? Go for it. Go talk to some people. Make some friends. People are really open and sharing and collaborative. And, yeah, you want to get into it? Go go taste. Go find what your favorite wines are. Find the styles. Figure, talk to the winemakers. See how they made it. You know, pick their brain. And we'll then Work some harvest, yeah, too. Yeah, work some harvest, yeah, for, sure, for sure. For um. sure. Yeah, figure out what you like too. Yeah. Figure out what, get a vision for what you want to make and just riff on it. Yeah. All right, so the questions that I have for the two of you, uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? I don't think so. No. No. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, thank you yeah. for, for your time and your hospitality and yeah. uh, sharing your story with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, thank cool. You. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. With a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.